Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. We are back in the book of Romans. Back. We were there last week. Here we are again. We're going to be there for a little while. We're looking at Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17 this morning. Would you stand with me as you're finding your way to that passage and as we read God's word together? Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. And it reads like this. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Will you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So here we are. Paul has been systematically dismantling reasons for people to be confident, to be comfortable in life. And he began by talking about those who feel liberated. They feel liberated in their pursuit of an existence apart from God. Their unquenchable thirst for satisfaction has led them down all sorts of impure and deviant paths. And that, he's Paul writes, actually gives evidence that they're now experiencing a precursor of God's final judgment as they are even now experiencing his wrath of abandonment. 
They're the runners, the people that are just out there. They're running away from God, and they have been abandoned by him. And then last week, Paul turned his attention to another group. Those who haven't slid maybe so far down the pit as the group before. And these people, well, they start comparing themselves with the former group by all these standards that they feel good about that they're, they're passionate about, or they're comfortable in keeping these standards, because these other people don't keep those standards, well then, <coughs> shame on them. With those standards, they simultaneously justify their own actions, and at the same time, they're judging others. These are the moral, or as we affectionately call them, the well-dressed. But Paul bursts their bubble by exposing that there's... There's a reality here that you are actually being hypocritical. And it's clear that you don't have any excuse for this, this hypocrisy. And it's also clear that you, just like those people who are running full speed away from God, well, you're going to be held accountable as well. And this morning, Paul brings another group to the forefront, to our attention. And it's really important that we understand that he does this not because he hates them. It's not because he is an anti-Semite. After all, he's one of them. In fact, he actually directs our attention to them, calls them out, puts them up on the examination table because he loves them. In fact, as we read on in the book of Romans later this year, when we get to chapter 9, we're going to find that he loves his fellow people so much that he would actually give up his own salvation. If he could, he'd give up, give up my own salvation so that they might come to know saving faith. Of course, we're talking about the Jews here. There's a lot of anger, there's a lot of hatred, there's a lot of animosity directed towards the Jewish people in our day, they, as they have at various times throughout history. Uh, even now, we're seeing resentment and disrespect, inhumane, brutal treatment, even unspeakable things, acts of violence towards the Jewish people. Now, Marxism tells us that those who are being oppressed, those are, are really the people that we should always be in favor of. In fact, that's actually the reason so many people are, are frustrated and angry and against Israel right now. Because they've come to believe that the Jewish people are in fact oppressors. But a deep dive into Marxism, you actually don't have to deep dive very, very far to realize that this is, a, this is a terrible, an anti-human way of thinking as it inevitably creates this oppressor and oppressed mentality. And its solution for solving this problem is not a biblical one and it is not a godly one because what it promotes is that the oppressor rises up and, or the, the oppressed rise up and they throw off the oppressor. And so it's not about forgiveness, but it's about rebellion. 
And it's about suppression. And it's about humiliation. Usurpation. Annihilation. But you know, regardless of how you label the Jewish people, maybe they're oppressors, maybe they're the oppressed, but the reality is that the ultimate threat to anyone is not the label that you or I or anybody else puts on them. The ultimate threat is what a righteous God thinks of them and declares on that day when they, like the rest of us, stand before the judgment seat. And that's what Paul is concerned with this morning. That's what you and I should be concerned with. And while some of us this morning might be thinking, this, this, this section, okay, this is one of those where I could probably take a nap during this sermon because it really doesn't pertain to me because, after all, I am not Jewish. But the reality is that whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ is spoken of, we should be paying attention to that. Because there's something there for us that God has. I may not be Jewish, you may not be Jewish, but I believe that God wants to reveal something to you and I this morning. And I believe that he wants us to place our lives up on the examination table. That we might examine ourselves. Ultimately, that we might be drawn closer to him. And that he might transform us more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's get into it. Who are these people? Verse 17, it says, If you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, boast in God, know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you were instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So he's not just anymore talking about those people who think that they are more moral than everyone else and making judgment calls on everyone else. He's not talking about Seneca. Seneca was Paul's contemporary. He was a Roman philosopher, and he was very vocal in speaking out about all of the immoral things that his fellow countrymen were involved in. But he's not talking about Seneca or people like him anymore. No, he's talking about talking about a people who are like no other. The people who were called out of darkness when their father Abraham was plucked out of the pagan worship he was involved in in his hometown of Ur. And he was promised he's going to be the father of a great nation, which would actually bless all the peoples of the earth. He's talking about a people who were given God's law at the foot of Mount Sinai, who were actually called his people. And he said, you know what? I will be your God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the patriarch Moses, he sings of the privileges of being part of this people. He says, for what, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has the statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You know what he's saying? He's saying, we're, we're unlike anybody else. We are unlike anybody 
else. This thing that we are a part of, do you realize how special this is? No one else has a a connection to the creator like we do. No one else has been entrusted with his precious, perfect loss, his revelation to the world. We've been entrusted with that. You know, you've heard it said, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, the Jewish people, they understood that with this great privilege of theirs also came a great calling. This special relationship wasn't merely for their own benefit, for their own good. It was to set an example for and to be an instructor to other peoples. And Paul lays it out right here very, very clearly, very thoroughly. In fact, in 17, 18, and 19, they believe themselves to be guides, guides to the blind, lights to those who are in darkness, instructors to the foolish, teachers of children. And someone says, well, that sounds pretty conceited. You guys think pretty highly of yourselves, don't you? Who are these people? They're so stuck up. How could you be so out of touch? Lights for the blind? Who told you that? Well, God did. Isaiah 42, 6 to 7. God told his servant Israel, I'm the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring about Bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. In in Isaiah 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What's God telling them? He's telling them they possess, they hold hope for the world. When you find yourself at an unfamiliar place, and you don't have a guide, you could actually be in real trouble. Have you ever had your phone go dead on you? And you're, you're out there, you and you're like, I, I'm lost. I have no Thomas guide anymore. What is a Thomas guide? There's, I can't survive out here. My family and I were, were uh, after our, our last mission trip to Germany, we went with the Bullock family down into Northern Italy to Lake Como. You know where all the James Bond films are, are, are shown, where, where Clooney lives? We go, went to go visit Clooney, a good friend of ours. And Matt is driving us around in this, this giant monstrosity of a car that was way too big for the roads. And I'm looking around, and everything is unfamiliar. It's beautiful, but absolutely unfamiliar. And every single sign that would pop up, I know I should know my, my roots and stuff like that and be able to decipher things. I couldn't understand a thing. And I thought to myself, I am a goner. I will never find our rental home if it's not for this guide that I have here. To a lost world, God chose Israel to be a guide, to be a harbinger of hope. They were to be the ones who were going to be given the message that a lost world so desperately needed. They were told that through them is going to come this one that would bring about salvation for everyone. And what an awesome thing that was. Incredible. They're the chosen ones. Lights to a dark world. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus would tell his followers, now you are the light of the world. You know, I wonder... 
I wonder if the role that Israel had and what they did with it, what we have in our passage today, has anything to show Christians about their role and what they should do with it. Okay, so it's the Jews, the chosen ones, the light bearers that Paul is addressing here. Well, what of it? Verse 21, he writes, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Whoa, whoa. Well, you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What's Paul zeroing in on here? Well, the same thing he was pointing out to all those well-dressed people in verses 1 to 16. Your hypocrisy, kind of a problem. You're actually doing the very same things you're telling people not to do. Do you see that? Stealing? You're, 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 you're committing adultery? The last thing he mentions here might, might strike us as a little odd. Robbing temples? What's Paul getting at here? Some people think that he's talking about uh, a reference uh, that jo- Josephus actually makes, the Jewish historian, that there was in fact a time when, in at least one incidence, where uh, they were robbing from the temple in Jerusalem. But what many have come to believe is that this actually refers to some very zealous Jews who would sneak out and sneak into the pagan temples. And they would get in there and they would carefully and quietly remove the idols, the gods. It's as if they were, they were so passionate. We can't have anyone but the true God worshipped. And so we're going to get these things out of here. We're going to go, we're going to destroy them, in fact. And it's also believed that when they destroyed them, they melted them down. And then they sold the precious metals for profit. Is Paul applauding this? Absolutely not. On the contrary, He's using this as an indictment against the Jews. And you know, I think there's something that we don't want to miss here. And that is that good intentions did not necessarily result in giving God glory or promoting gospel witness. When I was growing up, I could remember every Sunday we'd drive on the 210 freeway out to church about 15 minutes out. And uh, we would pass this enormous brewery. Some of you may have seen this thing out on the 210 freeway. And I'd look at that thing and I'd, you know, you know, I've heard the stories, you know, all this drinking and, you know, alcoholism and you know, all of that. There's some in my family. And so it was a common conversation uh, among us growing up. And I'd see this thing and I'd be like, I just start imagining. What if somebody just one day and it just takes a rocket launcher, just launches a rocket to one of those big cauldrons of, of beer? God be so awesome and be so incredible, and God would be so happy with me. <laughs> As a kid, that sounded cool. Now, looking at it now, though, I don't think so. I don't think God would be very happy with that. It, it's so important in our zeal that we don't bring dishonor 
upon the name of our Lord. Our, our, in our flesh, it, it, it creeps up and it, and it has this way of, of muddling up all of our good intentions, all of our most passionate intentions, but we could bring dishonor to the Lord. And dishonor is exactly what Paul is talking about here, what the Jews were bringing upon the name of God. They were the keepers of the law. They were entrusted with the law of God, and yet they were breaking the law. Break it here, break it there, left, right, up, down, all over the place. The law that they had been given was this outward sign that they were God's chosen ones, his people. And they held it as precious. But having the sign was no substitute for obedience to it. How could God judge this covenant people? Well, because outward signs, they're no substitute for inward reality. And verses 17 to 24 tell us that disingenuous living dishonors God. Looking the part but failing to live the life, that's unacceptable for God's people. It actually disqualifies them and puts them in a position Paul is saying, where they're deserving of God's judgment. Look at verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 52. He's also probably quoting from Ezekiel 36. Isaiah 52 says this. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. He's referring to the the punishment that is on the Jews. They've been removed from their land. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. There's something really important for us not to miss here. And that is that in these verses, Paul is not talking about the other nations, looking at the Jewish people and seeing all of the sinful things, all the sinful behaviors that they're caught up in, and these other nations are going, wow, these guys are despicable. Look how disgusting, look at what they're doing over here, and they're committing adultery over here, and they're doing this over here. No, 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 that's that's not what Paul is saying. Those other nations are doing those same things. It's no big deal, okay? They're just like us. But the blasphemy, what they are, are basically despising God's name over is they're looking at Israel and they're seeing these people are a mess. They are an absolute mess. And they are the ones that claim to have this great God. They tell us all these stories about how God delivered them back in the day. Look at them now. They are a disaster. Either their God isn't real or he's powerless to save them or he doesn't really care about them at all. In Ezekiel 36, 22, God tells the prophet, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Make it clear. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So in other words, God isn't going to help his people here and get them out of this mess because they somehow deserve it. But instead, because 
their defeated, displaced, and enslaved state is leading other nations to see God in God's name in the wrong light. Those, those Gentiles out there, they aren't blaspheming because of your hypocrisy. It's not because you're doing all kinds of things that aren't good. It's because your lives are a disordered mess that they're saying wrong things about me. What happens when people claim to know, claim to belong to God, don't obey God's commands, don't honor him with their lives, don't humbly, by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the light of his word, follow Jesus Christ. Their lives are in chaos. Their marriages are a wreck. They've allowed unforgiveness to creep in, bitterness to get in there, anger that's been building over time and it's built up walls between husband and wife. And rather than confessing their sins and humbly submitting to the Lord to redeem, to transform, to restore, they either live together in abject misery or they're desperately trying to find a way out of this thing. Their jobs are in jeopardy. Rather than being diligent, hardworking, honoring others with their actions, with their words, they put themselves in the hot seat. Their hot heads, their, their lax ways, their lack of focus, the squandering of their time. Maybe the squandering of company resources have made them examples, examples of who not to follow, examples of who not to promote, not to hold on to when it's time for layoffs. Their grades are in the tank. Because they haven't been seizing their opportunities that God has given them to, to ready themselves for his work later on. Their finances, they're in dire straits because they haven't been good stewards with God's money that he has entrusted them with. Their schedules, they're completely out of control because rather than yielding to God's priorities and resting in his provision for the day, they're desperately trying to do anything and everything and get this thing under control. They're going out of their minds. They're serving prison sentences. People I've served with are serving prison sentences because they fail to take moral purity seriously. And through a long series of compromises to satiate their lusts, they've now stepped out even beyond the, bond, the bounds that their sexually immoral culture is willing to tolerate. We could go on and on, couldn't we? You get the point. Our lives should tell people that there's something actually to this Christian stuff. Yeah, we have all kinds, we have disasters happen, we get sick, we have all sorts of things that happen to us, but there should be some evidence that, that following, that trusting, that listening to Jesus actually makes a difference. Maybe there is a God. Maybe he actually is good. Maybe, maybe his ways are the best ways. You know what Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, 7? It makes it clear. It's a privilege to be the people of God, to have the knowledge of his word. But if we're not living that, 
in light of that and in line with that than any claim that we make to be his people. You know what it does? It just tells everyone else. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this is just a joke over here. Why are these people giving up their Sunday mornings when this does nothing? Now, Paul's not trying to tell us that we need to be working for our salvation. No, no, no. And he's not talking about a prosperity gospel here. Well, just be faithful enough, and then God is going to bless your socks off. That's not what he's saying. But he's making it clear that merely claiming to be God's people without actually living as God's people, that dishonors him. And it makes us deserving of his judgment. Disingenuous living, it dishonors God. The Jews Paul is referring to here, they were relying upon outward signs rather than living this inward reality that they were to have as God's covenant people. One of those signs, as we already said, was the law. They had the law. Look, we are the people of the law. Of course, what other nation has this incredible law? But there was another sign. And that sign, of course, was the sign that marked their bodies, the sign of circumcision. Paul says in verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision, it becomes uncircumcision. And the obvious question that would have been rising in the minds of the Jews who were reading Paul's letter here is, well, well, what about circumcision? I, I mean, we bear the mark of God's people here. How could we possibly be not God's people when clearly we are God's people. John Stott writes, the Jews had an almost superstitious confidence in the saving power of circumcision. He points out there were rabbis who would write about this stuff. A couple quotes. One was that circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna. They don't go to hell. You've been circumcised? You're good. Another quote, circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. Confidence was so high in that outward sign that any suggestion that Paul might give that a circumcised person might be liable to judgment, that was unthinkable. And that's exactly what we have right here. What Paul's trying to get across in verses 25 to 29 is that circumcision is merely a sign. It's not the substance of their special relationship with God. The signs are only there to point to the substance. You see a sign for a place you go. That's not the place you want to go. It's pointing you. It's X number of miles ahead. Turn right, turn left. The signs point to the substance. That's the way it was from the beginning. Look back at Genesis 17 with me. Verse 1 says this. When Abram was 99 years old, it's pretty old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. What did God call Abram? In just a moment, he's going to call him Abraham. What did he ask him to do? Walk before him and be blameless. And in return, God promised that he would multiply his family greatly. Of course, there's more to it, but it's very clear that the conditions of the covenant involved Abraham and his family's obedience. Now look at verse 9. 
It says, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. What we're talking about here is a, is a contract. It's a covenant. Covenant is a contract. And in the ancient Near East, covenants always came with outward signs. The signs, they would, they would often be visible pictures of what would be done to anyone who broke the covenant. And so sometimes there would be an animal that was sacrificed, right? And you, maybe you'd, you'd, you'd cut it in half, and, and then you'd walk through the, these, these dismembered bodies of animals together, and, and you'd say, let it be to me, let it be to me what you see right here if I break this covenant. Everyone around, you are witnesses. This is my future here. If I break this covenant, let me be cut off from God completely forever if I do not keep my end of the covenant. Do you see that? Do you see the seriousness of this? Circumcision, the sign of the covenant. Now, I don't want you to think about this too much. Not in pictures. When we're talking about circumcision, what are they saying? They're saying, we are in. In the most intimate way possible, we're in. We're obligated to keep God's covenant. This is, this is in relationship to our future. We will cease to be as a people. We're at risk of being cut off, severed from you forever. The problem was, over time, they began to look at the sign as the guarantee that they were in good standing with God. As long as we have the sign, that's all that matters. It wasn't obedience that matters, it's the sign itself. And here Paul is giving them a rude awakening. It's not the sign. Not the sign that matters, it's the substance. It's what's happening on the inside. It's your devotion, it's your loyalty, it's your love, it's your obedience to God that matters. And I wonder how many people call themselves Christians thinking that they and God are totally good. Totally good. Never be at risk of God's punishment, of God's judgment because of some ritual they were a part of, some outward sign that they participated in. Maybe they were baptized. Maybe as an infant. Maybe even as someone who said they have faith as a, as a believer. Maybe they gave some money to the church to a good cause. They, they raised their hand in, in, in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or something, and, or they looked the pastor in the eye and they said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll pray this prayer with you. Or maybe they took communion. They attended church services regularly. They did something that other people saw. You're all witnesses right here. You saw what I did, and so I am in. I am automatically in. And that's what they're holding on to when the reality is all they did was go through the motions. Paul writes to these Jewish Christians here in Rome, 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. What? It's very outward and it's very physical. What are you talking about, Paul? 29, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. He's referring to the law there. Not by the letter. His praise is not for man, not from the witnesses, from God. He's telling them that the outward sign isn't what makes you one of God's people. It's a sign. No, the real thing, the real telling evidence is what's going on in here. It's something that isn't brought about by the law, by following the law, by trusting in the law. It's brought about by God's spirit here. (coughs) And something that doesn't bring about the praise of other people because no one else sees what's going on here. But you know who does? God sees what's going on inside of you. Let me ask you something. Where does your confidence come from? Is it something you did, some ritual that you participated in, some sacrifice maybe that you made? The sign doesn't cut it. How can God judge his covenant people? Well, because outward signs are no substitute for the inward reality. The disingenuous living, that actually dishonored God. And the signs, well, they only point to the the substance. And finally, God's justice, it doesn't depend on the faithfulness of his people. In in the first eight verses of chapter 3, Paul brings up several objections that he anticipates the Jewish people are going to be asking. And it's very, very likely that these were actually questions that he wrestled with in life as he went through his transformation and went from Christian persecutor to Christian maker. A few of the questions were were like this. So if circumcision doesn't save save us, then then okay, what's the point? What's the point of even being a Jew? What's the advantage of being a Jew? And Paul says there's tons of advantages here. There's many he only lists one here. He's going to list more later on in Romans. But he says, for one, you've, you've got the oracles of God. You've got the Old Testament. We talked about this. You've been entrusted with God's revelation here. That's awesome. Okay. What about this, Paul? So uh, if, being God's, if, if God's people are unfaithful, well, doesn't mean, that mean that God has kind of failed in a way? Here, follow me here. He promised to, 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 to bring about all kinds of all promises through his people, and now they've, they've failed, and so, uh, what, his promises are, are no good? What about that? Paul says, no way. And he quotes a verse that declares God's faithfulness is not dependent upon human faithfulness. They might fail. He never fails. Paul would write in one of his other letters, if we're faithless, he's, he's faithful. Our, faith, our faithlessness has nothing to do. He's, he's consistent. He, yeah, he brought about, he told you some promises. He said some things were going to happen through those people. Guess what? They, they happened. Someone might say, but if God uh, benefits from our unfaithfulness, this seems to me like that junior high kid that's just like, I gotcha, I'm going to tell you, teacher. So, so you're telling me God benefits from our unfaithless. He looks all the more faithful. He looks all the more righteous. It's like a contrast thing here. So the worse I am, the muddier I get, well, he looks more squeaky clean. And so, well, then doesn't that mean that it would be wrong for him to punish us because we're actually doing him a favor here by what we do? 
Paul says, no way. That's the way it worked. If the, if the disgusting state of, the, of all these people that God created make, makes him look better, well, he couldn't judge anyone. He couldn't be a judge. If you're saying he owes them something for him looking all, that's not the way it works. That's just foolishness. No matter how you slice it, no matter what kind of objection you try to raise, Paul makes it clear, his justice doesn't depend on the faithfulness of people. He has the right to judge, he has a reason to judge, and... If you're not kept his covenant, even if you might be his special chosen people, you're actually deserving of his judgment. And that's where somebody asks, who's kept this covenant? Who's done it? Anybody? Certainly not Abraham. You can read about his exploits. Not Isaac. Not Jacob. Not Moses. Is there anyone who has walked blamelessly before this God of ours? Have I? Have you? And if we're honest, the answer has to be no. So what then? Everyone is going to be cut off. Everyone's going to be separated. Everyone's going to be banished for eternity and eternity of misery and anguish, cut off from this good God that made them. Why did God even bother making this covenant with a people uh, who he knew was going to break it in the first place? Because of what he planned to do. And if we look at Colossians chapter 2, we find the answer here. Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 11, In him, in him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. These are the verses, right? When you read, you just go, okay, let's skip to the next verse. Let's skip to the stuff I can understand here. This is kind of weird. Circumcision, I try to get past that stuff anyway. It's uncomfortable. By the circumcision of Christ, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Notice, you've got circumcision and you've got baptism. Circumcision, a sign of the old covenant, is, uh, and then you've got baptism, the sign of this new covenant between Jesus and his people. In baptism, those who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ, they're lowered down into the water, aren't they? Signifying that their old life has been put away. It's been cut off just like Jesus was cut off. Paul says at the cross, Jesus explained, or Jesus experienced, excuse me, experienced the circumcision. He didn't deserve to be cut off, did he? Did he break the covenant? Absolutely not. In fact, he kept it to the letter. He kept it flawlessly. Nevertheless, at the cross, Jesus experiences the full force, the full curse of breaking the covenant, he experienced the circumcision, didn't he? That's what Isaiah 53, 8 tells us. He was cut off from the land of the living. 
with violators of the covenant are the ones deserving to be cut off, but he's cut off in our place. As we go down into the water, we now participate in that outward sign that speaks of the inward reality that by trusting in Jesus, our curse was paid for in his death. But as we come up out of the water, because he was made a curse for us, we now have new life, new restored life, restored relationship with God because of him. Yes, every single one of us, those who are running away, running off towards all sorts of mischief and devious immorality, those who try to cover up their shortcomings and and, and hold some high standards and use that to, to make themselves look better than everybody else, those who think that an outward sign somehow keeps them safe, all of us deserve to be caught off. But because Jesus was cut off in our place, we don't have to be. Let's pray. Father, we, I pray that we are more in awe of Jesus because of Romans 2.17 to 3.8. Lord, for those of us here or even watching online who do not yet know if Christ took their punishment, endured being cut off so that they don't have to, Lord, may they look to Jesus now confessing their need, confessing their sin, confessing, Lord, that they are doomed without what Jesus did on that cross. And they would say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I trust you. Thank you for what you did for me. Wash me clean, Lord. Make me new. Restore me that I might know you, that I might know the one who created me and once again have hope, which you promised. Oh, you promised it long, long ago. And you, even though we were unfaithful, you came through on that promise. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, may our, our, our hope grow, may our trust increase, may our joy overflow because of the reality of Jesus. We love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.